welcome to the Bro Nova Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome, friends. My guest this week is Edward Cronin. Ed has had a full career in law enforcement, working as a police advisor, an advisor to the Department of State on policing and law enforcement, as well as a chief of police in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. Ed is now promoting a platform for police reform based on his experience in the changes, the systemic changes he was able to implement as the chief of police in Fitchburg. Enjoy the show. One of the most frustrating and mystifying elements of police culture from the outside is this protect each other, thin blue line, we look after our own mentality. Yes. So from a police officer's perspective, what purpose does that culture serve and why does it exist? That's a good question. And um, I, if I was a, a PhD psychologist in the field, I don't think I could answer it accurately. But I can tell you some honest gut feelings and reactions to what your question is. Um, does that culture exist in policing today? Absolutely. Uh, where does it come from? Probably fear. Um, and a little bit about what we talked about earlier about being able to step out of the box and, you know, being your own person and not being afraid to do the right thing. And, um, I think, you know, we could, we need to be doing things, you know, differently. And it should start with leadership. Okay. A lot of times they talk about police reform. You'll hear a lot about it on the news and passing laws and all the, and all these type of things. But there are issues going on within policing that people are not aware of. And I can tell you right now, one of the biggest problems I confronted in my life as a police chief was substance abuse. Substance abuse, I found, was rampant in policing. Okay. Uh, I had problems with officers taking steroids. I had problems with officers taking alcohol. I had problems with officers taking drugs. And there's all kinds of programs out there that are there to help them. But like I said, in my eight years of chief of police, I never had one officer come into my office and say, I need help. It's only when they crash and burn mm. is when people come and they want to get help for the most part. And uh, before I became a police officer, um, 44 years ago, I quit drinking alcohol. I was an alcoholic and I had a very, very rough upbringing and I write about it in my book. So one of the things that kind of often scared people that worked for me was that, wait a minute, he knows what this is about. All right. So don't come in and bullshit me. All right. Um, so it's about, you know, taking your own personal responsibility and your own honor and integrity for why you took this job in the first place. And don't be a follower. I write about that in my book when I went to the police academy. You know, right away, I, I was indoctrinated into this uh trying to be indoctrinated into this culture where all of a sudden, you know, there was a pecking order. There was a bully in the class. There was people telling people what they could think and say. And is that still present today? Yeah, it is. And we need to have some really deep, honest conversations about that. Certainly. And, and that's interesting to hear you say the substance issue, because that's something that I don't think I've ever heard admitted but it's not surprising, and I don't think there should even be shame around it because we're all human. And, of course, every population of people, there's going to be individuals or sub-segments that have issues. Um, and I think why it comes around to a, a place where the public would be critical of something like a police officer being an alcoholic is when that same person could, in the same breath, use their enshrined power to be a bully, as you said. But the, the protecting culture I, I find as an outsider an interesting one because I understand the need for it from on a lot of levels because 
it's a job that is extremely challenging, dynamic, and dangerous. You know, there aren't many jobs in the world where a spouse leaves home and they don't know if they're going to come home alive. So I think that's valid and true. And at the same time, what really frustrates me and what I, one of the reasons I I wanted to have this discussion is because when those same individuals feel they're above the law or use that culture of protection as a buffer from being held accountable to the law, I think that's when a lot of the public loses faith. And it's a tough, it's a tough one because on one hand, I can see the need for it, the protection and the the lack of transparency in some ways to the outside world. But on the other hand, no one made any police officer take that job, right? right. Ultimately, there are, there are other jobs that have similar benefits and similar honor and don't involve acquiring that much power. You know, I think you're touching on a good point. And one of the things that I've learned, you know, I'm in my career now, I've done many different things and uh, the complexity of the job um, is overwhelming at times. Uh, And it's best not to deal with it when you're going through it because it's so overwhelming at times. But I think, you know, there are so many issues that you have to deal with in this type of a job. And um, uh, for instance, you know, we still have this uh, recruitment policy where, you know, I think in some states you can be, you can apply to be a police officer at 19. I know in Massachusetts, it's 21. And, you know, modern day science tells us that the brain doesn't mature in an individual until they're 26 years old. And the last part of the brain to mature is the frontal lobal part, which is reasoning, right? So we do a lot of assumptions about what we're doing because we're basing it on a military-type model, which is another thing. You know, uh, many times right now in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, we're getting a lot of officers coming from war zones. And... um, I am 100% in favor of, you know, supporting our veterans. My father was a combat veteran. He was a prisoner of war. He was tortured and all these things, all the trauma he went through. But that doesn't necessarily make you a good police officer. Those aren't necessarily the skill sets that you bring to the job. So I think part of, you know, what it is we need to be looking at, and I talk about it in the book, is we need to be thinking about what policing should look like in the future. Don't try to keep fixing what's there. And let's go back and look at policing. American policing is only 200 years old. And when you look at the scope of time, that's a drop of dust. A drop of, you know, it's, it's a peck of dust. That's all it is. And it started with Sir Robert Peel when he was in England, when he started the London police, Okay. And the reason they did that was because the military used to handle all the problems before the police came in. And uh, one of the used to, have you ever heard of that expression, read them the riot act? Well, it's a very common expression in policing, but a lot of times people say, you know, when my kid gets home, I'm going to read them the riot act, you know? Well, that comes from a time in policing where there was no police and the representative of the King would literally go out in the street in England and read, a scroll saying, basically, if you don't leave right now, we're sending in the military. And then they would. They'd send in the army and then they would slaughter people. And, you know, it, it didn't work. And uh, there was a lot of resentment. So this guy, Robert Peel, comes along and says, I'm going to do it differently. So one of the first things he does, is he changes, he creates a metropolitan police. And the first thing he does is he changes the uniforms from red to blue. Then he takes the brass buttons on their coats. It makes them into copper. And then he comes up with different philosophies like the people are the police, the police are the people. So we started on this measure of going in a different direction, okay? Because we, we, we did come from police. We did come from military. So I think today, you know, what we, be, what we should be looking at is 
what kind of services are we putting out there today? You know, people say, you've heard the expression, defund the police. Well, I understand where that's coming from, but I think the real word should be reallocate. You know, a police department today, say with 100 officers, I think would be much more effective if they had 20 to 25 social workers on the job who were available to help police and do a lot of these situations. And then also do training and things like restorative practices instead of incarceration and arrest all the time. So my future, my thinking for the future is, you know, let's not try to fix what's broken. Let's look at what we could have. So in that scenario of the, there's a hundred person budget, let's say hundred salaries, would it be a reduction of the um, officers to 75 with 25 social workers or how would that work? Well, you know, in that scenario with that, that's, that's a great question to start. And uh, have you ever heard of Bill Bratton? Okay, Bill Bratton is the foremost authority on policing in the United States today. He was commissioner twice, New York City, Los Angeles, <laughs> commissioner in Boston. Uh, he's written several books, and he is an administrator, and he has really gone down the line with, uh, you know, good information about doing policing. And one of the things we need to do, and that we do do well, is we need to qualify and quantify the data that we get. So in other words, looking at the amount of incidences that we have and categorize those incidences into certain areas and see if our skill sets match those areas. So it's a research type thing. And I really feel that even today, police are coming on the job, you know, some of them are coming on as rookies and they're coming on looking for the big one. You know, this big arrest, you know, this big showdown or whatever it is. And that is so out of the ballpark about what policing is. You don't, I, I never shot my gun in my whole time. I was, most officers don't, you know, so there's a misconception of what it is our job is. So we need to be redefining that. And, you know, when you say 75, 25, that's just a, I'm throwing out a number, but that needs to be defined mm -hmm. about what are the needs of the community that you live in? Right. Absolutely. Because a lot of the pushback, too, I feel from pro-police communities and the police union was around the breadth and the breadth of services they're required to do. So first responders in general, and, and my biggest hesitation to the defund the police argument, even before 2020, was that just by just by the fact of it, if you were to remove policing, we were going to lose the bulk of our first responders who respond to all types of crises, not just crime. Right. Right? Because they're, especially with the rampant drug addiction, for example, as, as a small, as a, like a, a large chunk of it. And then also this everyday police activities, you know, everyday community activities, community relations. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a tough one. And, and the thing that, I guess to, to lay my cards in the deck, I am having these conversations to educate myself, first of all, because I'm not from a police family. I've never been in law, for, law enforcement, but I'm a citizen of the country and I pay taxes. And that gives each of us a right to participate in the conversation. Absolutely. For me, the things that don't make any sense are internal reviews of misconduct. That's a flagrant red flag. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, to to my perception, but I th but I think that at the same time, like like I mentioned, there's a nuance required, and it's a tough conversation. So, one of the things about your profile that's very interesting is that you still identify as a police officer, right? You said our job, so that's a solid um, identification. And at the same time, your positions are often in contrast to the norm of your, your peers. So how do you handle that dissonance? That's a great question. Um, I, I think through age and time and maturity and results. Um, 
I just read one of Bill Bratton's books, and he's come to some of the same conclusions I have. For instance, uh, you know, uh, I hear everybody in all different areas, especially in policing, you know, some people get really excited. Black lives matter. You know, all of a sudden that's a, that's a catchword or it's something to say, well, police lives matter and all this other stuff. And what I say, and I think Bill Bratton says it in his book too, do black lives matter? Of course. And let's be an adult here. That's not about everybody's lives mattering in a conversation. That's about people coming from a perspective of oppression, racism, um, a lot of bad things that have been done generationally, generationally to black people and the outcomes that we have and the inability for us to have a conversation as to how this all happened. So um, there are leaders in my field who agree with what I'm saying. And you're right. You know, there are people with the, the dissonance that'll push back on it and stuff like that. But I go by results, okay? The, the criminal justice system in the United States is a patent failure, okay? Um, and let's look at the incarceration rates, okay? Uh, we lock up more people in the United States than any other country. Even China with 1.6 billion doesn't, only locks up a fraction of the amount of people we lock up, okay? And if you look at all the people that are locked up, you're going to see a massive disproportionate amount of people of color. Now, hello, is something going on? Why is this pattern there? All right. So I would say to anyone and into my peers that the police didn't invent this. This is what the public wants. This is what our society has put our police out there to do. All right. And we as police leaders can go along with it or we can step up and say, no, this isn't working. And let's be adults, okay? So that's where I go. I look at the I look at the data, and uh, right now the data doesn't report a very good job. For sure, it's also like the China example. There are a lot fewer personal freedoms in China, yeah. and we are a country that fetishizes personal freedoms. Um, which is a good thing. I think, I think it's, it's a blessing and a privilege to, to be able to live in the U S. So with your vision for the future, what are the policy platforms or the, the mecha mechanisms of how you would go about designing a future, a future law enforcement ecosystem? That's a great question, too. I talk a little bit about it in the book at the end, especially. Um, well, one of the things I do is I do recruitment differently and I do training differently, at least uh, bringing people on board. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, right now I went to the police, the police academy, I think in my state now is something like 20 weeks, 22 weeks or something of that nature. And a lot of it is, you know, listening to lectures, rote memory, uh, studying laws, practices and things of that nature, firearms and things like that. And, you know, frankly, a lot of it is not particularly difficult. Um, but I don't I think that what we're concentrating now is putting people out there that are in line with the policies that are currently in place. And we're not promoting um, what policing should be with the public. So one of the things I would suggest, and actually Bratton came up with the same idea, is when they're in the academy, take them out for a month. Put them in a neighborhood where people are hurting and suffering, okay? And put them on a project for a month and start working with these people. You know, you're going to see their kids and stuff like that, and they're going to get in trouble and all that. But you're going to see that some of these kids, you know, are not even eating breakfast any on a regular basis. You know what I mean? They're not, they're coming from abusive homes. They're coming from a very disadvantaged background. So get to know the people that you serve first. Okay. And I think that's kind of got lost in the shuffle. So, you know, that's one thing I would do. I would do training differently, a lot differently. Um, 
I think in the future, you know, um, there's, I think that the leadership that we have needs to step up and needs to say, honestly, what we talked about a minute ago, the process isn't working. Let's have an honest conversation. Okay. Now I know there's another buzzword going around now, critical race theory. Okay. And that one's getting people jumping out of windows at the same time. All right. But if you have any reality of education in life, the roots of all that stuff is true. All right. And it isn't my fault, your fault, or anybody else's fault. It's reality. So until we have honest conversations about why we are where we are today, why we're locking up all these people, then we're not going to change. We can't change it with a policy and a law. So um, one of the things that I did when I was a police chief in a city, I studied systems thinking in organizational development at Suffolk University. And when I took over the city I, as a police chief, we had a higher murder rate per capita than the capital of Boston. All right, I was chief of crime city. Uh, the Latino dropout rate in the high school was 40%. All right, these were my gang members that were coming up. And most of the murders were occurring in the Latino community, okay? And when I came on board as a police chief, the white community wanted me to punish the other and take care of this problem. And we, we jacked up enforcement at all different kinds of levels. And after two years, there was no difference. So it wasn't until I had a conversation with a Latino woman that came in to me who was working with the public school systems to increase their effectiveness. And I said to her, nobody in your community wants to talk to me. I reach out and they don't. Nobody says anything. She, What's going on? And she says, well, you're the one that has all the power. And I said, what do you mean? You have the money. You have the cars. You have the police officers. You have the guns. What are you doing about it? And for the first time, I heard it differently, and I began to reflect. And then I engaged in conversations with this woman over a long period of time, and then she brought in all kinds of mothers that I spoke with. And we ended up putting together a task force and we trained everyone in systems thinking about why crime was occurring in our city. This was back in 2005. And after we did the process, which took a week, and the representatives of the community from leaders from the press, universities, minority community, police, education, came out with two reasons why crime was occurring. First was systemic racism and the lack of economic opportunity for at-risk kids, okay? So what we did was, uh, when, they, when they announced that, three white leaders got up and said, we're not talking about racism, and they walked out. And I stood up as the police chief, and I said, yeah, we are going to talk about it. So I used my power and my privilege to go along with the truth. And... We ended up taking money that we normally took from drug raids for enforcement. We used it to create jobs for kids in the summer, along with other agencies. And we saw it's a decrease in crime. And now today, Fitchburg, the city, had one murder last year. And the dropout rate with Latino students is down below 8%. So we used our heads. We used the process. And I think it's a process that could be duplicated in a lot of places. And remember, we identified that issue back in 2005 in a white community. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. Following this conversation with our guest, I'll be giving my reflections in the conversation, what we discussed, and what stood out to me most. Get involved in the conversation. Find me on Instagram at Pod, or send me an email, thomas at com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Enjoy the rest of the show.
That's awesome. So lack of economic opportunity is pretty self-explanatory. And something more abstract and also something much more controversial is the definition and existence of systemic racism. So in that scenario, in that task force, how did you define systemic racism and how did you communicate it in a way that a wider group was open to hearing and listening? That's a great question. Um, and it, we could do another couple of shows on that process, but um, basically <laughs> we use the systems thinking process, which is a process that was developed for business in the fifties by a guy by the name of Jay Forrester. And basically what it is, is when it was designed for business problems and, but you can use them in social problems too. And what it does is it, gets you to start a conversation around the idea of why something is happening and don't get into the emotional pieces of it. All right. And people, you know, we got the ground rules for systems thinking and how to do it and all that stuff. And people began the conversation talking about their personal experiences and a lot of the uh, discussions were facilitated. There were breakout sessions and stuff like that. And what systems thinking tries to do is it doesn't look for a left-wing solution or a right-wing solution. It looks for the right thing. It's almost like a emotional scientific analysis, uh, uh, an unemotional scientific analysis. And that's where we came out with these things. And then once we identified them, I'll give you an example. You know, I was open because I was listening all the time. All right. One day, you know, one woman, Spanish woman was berating me and saying how, how prejudiced your offices are, how discriminating they are in, in the schools with our kids and they throw them out and all this other stuff. Then I began to think about it. And I, I went up to the high school one day and there's a principal, the assistant principal outside screaming at a Spanish kid yelling, hey, Jose, next week you turn 16 and I'm throwing you out. Bye. All right. This was common practice. All right. Um, we had a, a woman that was retiring in our police department that was working with people coming in the lobby, you know, reports, communications and things like that. And I said to her boss that worked for me, when she retires, we're getting somebody that speaks Spanish. And you know what his answer was? Will they be qualified? So I've said that question and answer, and I've said it to many, many police chiefs over the years, and none of them think there's anything wrong with that question and answer. But the systemic racism part of this is most of them aren't qualified. So you better be very careful who you select. Okay. So it's there, you know, it's just, it's almost like once we had the conversation, yeah. it was like an unconscious awakening. Yeah. That, that question is in response is really interesting because it's on the surface. What's wrong with that? He's just asking if they're going to be qualified. I would ask if any candidate is qualified, but the problem is that, if that is the immediate response after suggesting having a Spanish speaking person, you know, to use it, to take like an experimental approach would be do the same thing and say, Hey, let's, uh, let's get a, a white guy from the, our town to replace her when she retires. <laughs> would that be the same question? No, it would probably be, Oh, I know someone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all these subtleties that add up to blocking people out, you know, and like I said, you know, policing, you know, you're right when you talked about, you know, the, the deficits in policing. But remember, policing are empowered by the people. And if you look at the history of policing in our country, you know, we were the ones that enforced slavery. We were the ones that enforced the black codes during Reconstruction. We were the ones that, uh, you know, punished people in civil rights movements. Okay. I saw a meme on Facebook. It wasn't a meme. It was a picture on Facebook. Uh, a kid in 1922 in Georgia, 14 years old, black kid was electrocuted. And he was electrocuted because he was accused of raping a white girl, which he never did. 
and he screamed till they till he died while he was being electrocuted. You know, I don't have that history in my family, but if I did, maybe I'd be a little resentful. You know, so some beautiful people in my life have opened up my eyes to see things a little bit differently than a lot of my peers. And I'd like to spend the rest of my time writing and talking about how we could do things a lot better. Certainly. Because I I think the majority of people of all, of all races see the utility and the function of a police force. It would, it would be relative extremists um, on both sides who want to do away with, with law enforcement, either to promote militias or either to promote anarchy or anarchy. An- anarchism is not a word, just anarchy and, and a disposal and a destruction of all systems that we have in place. And it seems to me like the asks that are coming out of the black community specifically, and I would say any vulnerable community, whether it be poor, a poor community from a class perspective, whatever the imbalance of power is, their asks are very reasonable. Yes. It's, it's treat us with respect. Don't act with constant, undue suspicion. Um, don't abuse the power entrusted upon you. So to me, it, it, when so much of the response is defensive and emotional, that is a red flag. Rather than just like you're saying, let's have a rational conversation. And it, I find it also very ironic because a lot of the right-wing punditry about these types of conversations is that it's a liberal snowflake. They're so emotional. They're so unequipped to deal with reality when to me, it seems like the police unions are very emotional, very reactive and throwing more fuel on the fire rather than responding with the grace and authority that leaders would respond with. Yeah. I I don't think you're wrong about that. Uh, You know, you've mentioned the unions a few times and uh, believe me, I'm no lover of police unions. (laughs) I've had my dealings with them over the years. Um, And uh, you know, you talked about internal affairs reviews and reviewing your own people and things of that nature. And it's a very, very, um, not just a tough system, but a, it's very inconsistent. It's very, uh, it's not effective. It just, it's ineffective. You know, let's face it. I mean, I, I don't have a problem saying that. And on the other hand, mm-hmm. you know, I understand where they're coming from too. You know, there are areas in policing where you have to operate in the gray. And what does that mean? That means that sometimes when you're doing things, you're right on the edge of breaking the law in order to get something done. And you have to make that decision. And sometimes it could be a life and death decision. Sometimes it could be something less than that. And it's really decisions that most people are not called upon to make. All right. And I think that's where that whole thing of covering for each other comes in. It comes in in a legitimacy of when they're needed support. But then it gets warped and it goes way out of balance when people start, you know, you know, basically defending criminals. You know, I mean, I I remember, you know, being a police chief and having officers who committed criminal behavior and were never found guilty of anything because the witnesses wouldn't testify. Okay, so under the system, system. They're good. You're free to go. But I know that that person committed a felony. And if I was a citizen, would I want that guy coming to my house? No. You know, so 
I I share the frustration. Uh, I really don't know how to fix it, but I do know in my heart that we can do it better by creating something different. For sure. I think a way to fix it would be to apply. Well, I, I think the first step would be education. So, and it'd have to be a grassroots level because each state is different. I would imagine each city municipality is different, but looking at the laws as they stand and what are the areas within which people can apply pressure on the law enforcement of their community legally. Because to me, again, as I said at the top, where does this money come from? From the tax base. So ultimately it is the people writing the checks for this and many other local state, federal government agencies but by keeping us disorganized and keeping us fragmented, the collective, you know, the, the, the potential energy, if you will, of a community is kept untapped because of disorganization and distrust. So that, that's one thing. Um, the other thing, too, that I wanted to ask about was a guide to interacting with the police. And for the average citizen, how can they if and when they're ever interacting with the police, how can they conduct themselves to not be manipulated and not be overexposed, we could say, or from, from your perspective, you know, working in, in it, how, how, how should someone interact with the police in a way that's productive and uh, protects them essentially? Um, that's a, that's a good question. And I think honestly, it depends who you are. You know, I cannot answer that question as a young black man. Okay. I can answer it as a white man, um, which is, you know, do what I was brought up to do. When a police officer approached me or stopped me or anything of that nature, I would be um, cooperative, somewhat submissive, actually, because I don't want to show any hostility uh, and be cooperative as best I can be. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if I'm coming at it from a point of view of, you know, being stopped and I'm a black person and I have all this history and everything else going on, you know, I think the, uh, you know, uh, what goes on inside a person is a lot different than what goes on inside of somebody like me. You know, I think I've only been stopped once or twice in my whole life and, uh, I never took any offense by it. And both times I was guilty of speeding (laughs) and, uh, you know, I just had to (laughs) like, you know, eat it and, uh, hope for the best. Um, but, um, yeah, if, if you're somebody else and you come from something different, you know, um, you know, like people say, you know, they have to have that conversation with their kids in the black community about how it is if you get stopped. And I understand that. I understand it. And it's not right, but it, it's, it's, you want to be okay. You want to be safe. Totally. Um, and I asked that too, just cause I've come across some information about, well, a few, a few educational points that I never knew. So the difference between being detained and not being detained. Yep. So as I understand it in most States, if a police officer stops you, uh, they need to be, and detain you, so to hold you, without placing you under arrest, they need to be able to articulate a reasonable suspicion, suspicion yeah. that the individual has committed a specific mm-hmm. crime. Um, and I, I think that's something that most citizens wouldn't know, because exactly like that, we're trained to be submissive, we're trained to be deferential, and to not arouse suspicion. Yep. So there could be a situation where a police officer just says, stay here. And if someone's not educated to say, what am I being detained for? Then they may not know that they have a right to leave, for example. Um, so just stuff like that. I think it's in so much, it's, it kind of ties into a wider theme of, uh, so many areas where there's not a lot of education, um, mental health, 
financial literacy, credit, yep. you know, what is credit? Like there's, there's so many areas of our society that are kind of uh, misguided and maybe more it's a reflection too of how complicated life is, right? That's hard to give a broad, a broad base of education on all these topics. Right. But tying into the other themes of the show are just around healthy masculinity and what it means to, you know, to be a good man. So for yourself, you know, things you've learned in your life, what would you share with a young person about being a good adult and being a responsible member of society of all genders? I always feel like be humble. You know, um, man, we don't know the answers to a lot of things. We don't know what we don't know sometimes. And, um, you know, listen. Um, and that's not an easy thing always to do, to listen. Um, but it's the only way that I was able to learn throughout my career. You know, all those key points, those leverage points came about through deep listening about what people have to say and trying to put yourself in their shoes. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, when, you know, what was the basis for, you know, why I went into policing and why I try to do things the way I do? Well, it's honestly, it was, came from my faith, you know, and the type of faith that I learned was a faith that practiced helping others and sacrificing, not preaching and telling people what to do. So um, mm. I think we can do a lot more by example than we can by, you know, promulgating and saying things out there that, you know, go in one ear and out the other. For sure. I think that's a huge lifelong endeavor, right? Because yes. part, part of how we protect ourselves and also succeed is to project and also have a authentic confidence, right? Because I've found so far in life, it's, it's very effective and helpful to be able to interact with other people in a way that inspires confidence, right? Inspires them to believe in you, believe what you're saying, whether it's transactionally in a workplace, more relationally getting what we need, you know, in a, in a social environment. Mm -hmm. So then it's, it's kind of a mind shift to go from kind of always operating on that level to then catching ourselves when it goes too far. Yeah. It's that reflection piece, um, that we have to constantly be working on. And, uh, you know, there is no formula. Uh, I don't think, um, but I think, you know, what's inside, what's intent and uh, what it is we want, we're trying to accomplish is says more by our actions than by what we say. Okay, everybody, it's Thomas coming back in. My audio dropped out here, but at this point we jumped to the conversation game. So Ed is going to answer two questions from the game and he'll read out the question as well. What's your moonshot? A dream that's so big that it scares you. Um, boy, I, you know, that's a great question. I, I've got some big ideas, um, but I have to say, um, I'm not scared. You know, if I had a dream right now, one of the things that I'd want to do is I'd want to be the head of the department of justice right now, but it wouldn't scare me. Um, I guess, Maybe I've been through enough things already in my life, uh, and I've been tested a lot of times. Um, but, uh, it, you know, I, I feel confident. I feel like, you know, what I've done has been to the betterment of people. I think I have some great ideas that could be fostered and promoted within the government itself. Um, that's a whole nother topic too, but you know, uh, I think we've lost our way in policing after nine 11, all our funding for community policing went away. 
And if I was in the Department of Justice, I'd be promoting funding and program that bring people closer together. And that could institute new policies to make police better. So I guess that's my moonshot. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, that's, that's, a, yeah, uh, I'd love to, but I'm not sure how to get there. <laughs> but what I will say is people like you, your show and other podcasts that I'm doing, writing a book, um, that's the moonshot, I guess, thinking that somehow all this process will bring this change in the long run. And I'm not scared. Okay, and this next story deals with the question of integrity and a time when Ed had to act with honesty and integrity when he didn't necessarily need to or because of his position of power and authority, he would have been able to avoid doing the right thing. Well, um, the last time I was at police chief back in 2007, um, I had a pretty successful uh, tenure of five years. And that's when we turned around a lot of the crime and the systemic racism and everything else we brought to the surface. And I also observed a lot of things in my police department that I didn't like and needed to be changed. And a financial crisis came about where um, I had to lay off a lot of people. And... Um, the union uh, wanted me to lay off all the civilians that I had first before the police officers. And there was a myriad of decisions why that was not a good decision. And one of the ones that stuck out mostly in my mind was that most of all my civilians were women. And I had witnessed from time to time some of the behaviors of some of the officers towards the women in the department and it disturbed me. And, um, the union got together with the government, the city government, and laid off all the, all these women. And uh, I felt so betrayed um, that I submitted my resignation. And um, you know, I remember one of my one of my friends coming in my office, my captains, and saying to me, Chief, what are you worried about? Just put your feet up on the desk and read the newspaper. What do you care what they say? And I said, I got to look in the mirror. You know, I can't, you know, do things that are against what I know or know is right. So that one, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book, too. I wanted to get that all out there. And, you know, I really feel honestly that time has justified everything that I did. But at the time I did, it was extremely difficult. It was, uh, it was very painful, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, even today, you know, people come back and, you know, mention it. And, you know, even sometimes when you do something or I do something and you do it because you know it's, you feel it's right, uh, even though people don't, you don't hear from people, they don't acknowledge it, but they notice it and they don't forget it. And that's what I've found now that I'm at this point in my life, you know, I, the book that I've written, I've had so many people contact me and want a copy of it, you know, and uh, read it and then give me this fabulous feedback. Um, so, you know, sometimes you don't get the accolades along the way, but in the long run, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, it's on all different websites. Uh, but the easiest way to get it is to go to my website, which is www.justpolicing.org, and you can order it right off the website. All right. Thanks for listening to that one, folks. That was a great conversation. Apologies for the audio changes at the end, but I felt like that story was important. And there were a lot of important things shared in this conversation. For me, the first one that jumps out is still just that practice and policy of police agencies investigating themselves over items of misconduct. I mean, how many instances have we seen of the department did an internal review, found no wrongdoing, or if there was wrongdoing, the officer was essentially 
uh, sidelined with pay or even if they were fired without pay, don't face any repercussions of note criminally for their actions. So to me, that one still just is such a huge red flag and I think would be a big shift in how communities interact with the police that are supposed to be serving them. And the the second thing that really sticks out to me is the courage of Ed to do this because he's going against the grain of his group, his group of peers, right? You know, as we said, he still identifies as a police officer, but he's also pointing out these things that don't make sense to him, speaking up, going on podcasts, writing a book about it, promoting it. So I think it's really awesome what he's doing. And I love that his approach approach also includes this systems theory, systems thinking, because it can apply a way of thinking from other areas of life, like the economy, organizational development, running a business, and apply it to this type of organization too, which I think has immense value. So those are my thoughts at the moment. Thank you for listening. And you'll be hearing more items of policy and society. I think on the show, those are kind of areas where I think we need to have more conversations and more education. So thanks very much for joining me for this week's episode. Hope you had a good time listening. Please share the episode with a friend who you think will be interested in, in hearing and learning. And we'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau podcast.